a member. We have a community who is once again under attack and losing a member. In Chicago, we're mourning Laquan, who was killed over there by police. In Minneapolis, we're mourning Jamar, who was killed by police. And right here on Good Oak Road, we are mourning Zoe, who was killed by special police, whatever that is. So all around the country, we are in the exact same position, facing the exact same thing. This evening, we wanted to get together for the family and mourn Zoe with the family and uh, give a, uh, a proper vigil. Uh, however, we are not going to limit our options to just candlelight vigils. So we, are, we have a flyer that's about to go out now, and we have a uh, sign-in sheet that is uh, going around. Uh, we are calling for a rally on the 12th, Saturday, December 12th, which is not this coming Saturday, but the Saturday afterwards, right back here, where we'll be making our demands heard a bit more forcefully than we've done tonight. Tonight we're here to mourn and to be with the family, but next time we're coming back, we're coming back with some more stuff. Yes, sir. We are, uh, our communities here in D.C. as well as around the country are under attack, black communities in particular, and we're under attack because the police treat us as if they are an occupying force. Keep it plain. Keep it simple. The same, the same things you see and hear. And welcome to Thursday's Community Watching Comment, the on-the-ground edition for Thursday, December 3rd, 2015, on your station for Jazz and Justice, or as we say on this show, Justice and Jazz, on WPFW 89.3 Pacifica listener-sponsored radio in the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. And on the ground covers social justice activists and activism here in the DMV across the nation and around the Blue Planet. Today, Ron Davis, whose son Jordan was murdered by Michael Dunn after a verbal dispute over loud music at a Florida gas station. Also, Amy Alexander and Jamila Bayer in the house giving a side eye to the U.S. presidential race. And there's plenty happening in the world of art and activism. As always, we have a lot for you in this less than an hour, starting with our headlines. Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel told reporters yesterday that he has no plans to resign in light of the controversy over the death of 17-year-old Laquan McDonald, shot to death by a Chicago police officer more than a year ago. Asked by Politico if he would resign, he said, no, we have a process called the election. The voters spoke. I'll be held accountable for the decisions and actions that I make. Several leaders, including the Reverend Jesse Jackson and also Van Jones, who served with Emanuel in the first Obama administration, have called for the Chicago mayor to step down because of what they say appears to be a cover-up of McDonald's death, which occurred when Emanuel was in the midst of a, of a highly contested and racially sensitive mayoral race. In Black Lives Matter news here in the DMV, the defense and prosecution made opening statements in the trial of William G. Porter, one of six Baltimore police officers charged in the death of 25-year-old Freddie Gray in April of this year. And here in D.C., friends and family of Alonzo Smith held a candlelight vigil on Tuesday night outside the Marbury Plaza apartments on Good Hope Road in southeast D.C., Alonzo was a 27-year-old D.C. resident, Virginia school teacher, and father of a six-year-old son. On November 1, 2015, Alonzo was killed unarmed at Marbury Plaza Apartments in southeast Washington. He was found handcuffed in the custody of private security guards known as special police who are armed, have arrest powers, and are licensed by the district. 
Until this day, the D.C. Metropolitan Police Department has not disclosed the identity of who is responsible for or suspected of killing Alonzo Smith, nor have any charges been made. From all appearances, this seems to include a cover-up by the Metropolitan Police Department, according to Smith's family and friends. They are demanding that the special police responsible for his death be identified and charged. Full disclosure about what happened to Alonzo with complete <coughs> transparency of its relationship to the special police and an independent investigation into his death by the United Nations and or the Organization of American States. Beverly Smith, mother of Alonzo Smith, told reporters Tuesday that the two officers involved have been suspended and that their licenses have been revoked, but they have not been charged. The Metropolitan Police Department has not responded to these demands, saying only that the case is still being investigated. Uh, let's hear some voices again from that uh, vigil. We have a family who lost fam a member. We have a community who is once again under attack and losing a member. In Chicago, we're mourning Laquan, who was killed over there by police. In Minneapolis, we're mourning Jamar, who was killed by police. Yeah. And right here on Good Hope Road, we are mourning Zoe, who was killed by special police, whatever that is. So all around the country, we are in the exact same position, facing the exact same thing. This evening, we wanted to get together for the family and mourn Zoe with the family and uh, give a, uh, a proper vigil. Uh, however, we are not going to limit our options to just candlelight vigils. So we, are, we have a flyer that's about to go out now, and we have a uh, sign-in sheet that is uh, going around. Uh, we are calling for a rally on the 12th, Saturday, December 12th, which is not this coming Saturday, but the Saturday afterwards, right back here, where we'll be making our demands heard a bit more forcefully than we've done tonight. Tonight we're here to mourn and to be with the family, but next time we're coming back, we're coming back with some more stuff. Yes, sir. We are, uh, our communities here in D.C. as well as around the country are under attack, black communities in particular, and we're under attack because the police treat us as if they are an occupying force. Keep it plain. Keep it simple. The same, the same things you see and hear about the way they treat us here and the way they treat us in black communities around the country is the exact same way the military treats people in Afghanistan and in Iraq and in other places where they're an occupying force. Right. The link between today's crisis of police brutality and the strategy of economic boycott was discussed here on WPFW last night in a three-hour special marking the 60th anniversary of the Montgomery bus boycott following the arrest of Rosa Parks for refusing to give up her seat to a white man. Labor leaders and Black Lives Matter activists discussed a wide range of issues, including the link between resisting state violence and organizing for a just economy. Doris Crenshaw, who was only 12 years old when Rosa Parks made her stand, talked about police brutality then and linked it to police brutality now. Uh, with Mrs. Parks and the women in Montgomery, women were being arrested. Over 800 women were arrested in this city. And, um, and um, they would, some of them, when they were arrested, rather than taken to jail, they were taken off and raped. One of them um, escaped and went to my pastor's house, uh, drug herself up on his porch. So we then knew about that. In that time, we had, as you all will recall, we had, uh, we would be around the table. 
and people talked around the table about what was going on in the community. The other thing is there was not a single organization or place that we met that the, what was happening in the community was not discussed, and we were therefore engaged and involved. And also, a just economy was the topic yesterday here in D.C. about paid family leave. Chantel James was on hand at the hearing and has more. Increasing the time that new parents have to spend with their infants or attend family emergencies <clears throat> was the subject of a D.C. Council public hearing yesterday at City Hall. The hearing was held on Bill 21-415, the Paid Leave Act of 2015. The act, introduced on October 16th by Council Members Grosso, Nadeau, McDuffie, Silverman, Allen, May, and Che, would grant up to 16 weeks of paid leave for workers experiencing health crises or emergencies, including the birth of a child. The session was presided over by Council Chairman Phil Mendelson. Speakers included Nikki Lewis, Executive Director of Jobs for Justice, and Jacob Feinstein of Jews United for Justice. Lewis spoke on the importance of having or of not having had paid family leave. And I understand that there were quite a few babies and small children in attendance at the hearing, and uh, you thought that was fitting given the subject matter. Maybe they were trying to make a point to the city council. Uh, now, Chantel, you were also out on the National Mall before the Thanksgiving weekend to attend uh, what sounded like an amazing event to draw attention to the failed so-called war on drugs. Tell us about that. Well, on November 20th and November 21st, Activists gathered on the mall for a catharsis on the mall, a 48-hour vigil honoring victims of the drug war that ended with a fire set not far from the Washington Monument. Inspired by the Burning Man Festival, organizer Robert Heiford said that through art and peaceful expression, the event demonstrated the transition to a more compassionate society. The action culminated in the burning of the Temple of Essence. A temple had been constructed out of paper and cardboard, and was inscribed with the messages attendees had written about the impact the drug war has had on them on, and on their loved ones. As night fell, attendees danced to music and trolled colorful glow sticks, singing songs in groups. So then after it was time to light the temple, some fire bears came out to, and surrounded the temple, and they uh, chanted, No More Drug War. So uh, I know you had some voices that you recorded, and we couldn't get them processed for today, but hopefully we can play them in the future, okay? Okay. All right, so since 1975, more than 35 million, wow, is that the right number of drug arrests have been made, and Catharsis on the Mall also included speakers, panels, art exhibits, and performances. A Facebook group has also been established for the event, and the page says that it will be an annual event. So yesterday when I was looking at your material about catharsis on the mall, I was reminded of the many abuses by law enforcement during the so-called war on drugs. Uh, and there was a story at, that actually broke recently. Um, according to documents uh, recently unveiled by the Alabama Justice Center, police officers in Dothan, Alabama, planted drugs and weapons on young black men for years. And this is from an investigation by the police department's internal affairs unit. Uh, it revealed that this egregious police mis misconduct, but when the Alabama Justice Center um, con confronted the 
the district attorney in Dothan, they found that he had covered up the results and made sure the investigation was kept quiet. The officers implicated in the scandal were on a special narcotics team, and the investigation revealed that these officers had been planting drugs on minority residents since 1996, but they weren't fired. They were promoted. At the time, the unit was supervised by Steve Parrish and Andy Hughes. Parrish is now the Dothan police chief, and Hughes is Alabama's assistant director of Homeland Security. So the when the spot misconduct was discovered, it was the prosecutor's job to vindicate the innocent and hold the officers responsible, but the district attorney did neither. So we're definitely going to keep following this story. Uh, one of the more disturbing elements of it is the fact that these police apparently targeted young black men who had clean records so that they would basically be ruining their lives. And some of these men are still in prison. It's estimated that up to a 1,000 men may be impacted by this, and many are still in jail. Okay, so we'll continue to follow on these cases again, and these are our headlines. Up next, we're going to have a, a look at the presidential race with preachers this week and Donald Trump, and also we'll look at Spike Lee's new joint. Stay with us. Here we go, yo. back to Thursday's Community Watch and Comment, the On the Ground Edition. Now it's time for our weekly politics segment, Side Eye on 2016. And we have Jamila Bay and Amy Alexander providing their unvarnished analysis of the election 2016. Let's jump in, Amy. Good what had morning. you roll in Side Eye this past week? Oh, my gosh. Well, you know, it's, it's, it was busy, busy. Even Thanksgiving didn't seem to slow anyone down, especially not Trump. Basically, it's Trump time. Here at Side Eye 2016. And so, you know, Trump is like on a, he's been on a bender. 
right? So uh, he sent out in the last week, he, he got a criticism for sending out tweets with false information that seemed to show some chart that white supremacists had published showing allegedly how more black people kill more white people. Uh, he mocked a reporter who has a physical disability. A uh, black man got beat up at one of Trump's rallies, and Trump says, well, maybe the guy deserved to be beat up. So he's on this bender, right, of inappropriate comments and behavior. And, you know, basically, writ large, he's sort of pointing toward being something of a fascist, right? So during Thanksgiving week last week, it emerges that Trump camp, Trump's camp had put out a flyer or a poster saying, oh, the Monday after Thanksgiving, we're going to have a big press conference because I'm being endorsed by 100 black ministers. Well, so that is potentially uh, an interesting development for a couple of reasons. One, uh, people who have 501c3 designation because they're a religious de- or organization are not supposed to be able to make political endorsements. So that on its face is problematic. The second piece is African-American ministers tend to be historically, at least over the past 50 years, relatively liberal. So why would they endorse Donald Trump? So upset ensues. People criticize black ministers in the in the Twitter. On and on it goes. A minute black minister in, in Baltimore who's named Jamal Bryant, Reverend Bryant, who's uh, overseeing a very large congregation in Baltimore, put out a tweet li- midweek last week accusing the ministers who supposedly are meeting with Trump of being prostitutes. So it's getting heat- hotter and hotter in Twitter. A lot of the black ministers began tweeting back saying, actually, my name is on that list, but I have no intention of showing up. I don't know what's going on. So by Sunday evening, Trump puts out a note saying, actually, I'm going to cancel the meeting. And all yet and still, Monday morning, we realized the meeting actually did happen at Trump Tower in Midtown. But it wasn't 100 black ministers. It was probably more like 40 or 50. When they came out of the meeting, it emerged that uh, you know, according to Reverend Daryl Scott, who is a pastor at a church in Ohio, who some refer to as being the ringleader of having rounded up black ministers to meet with Trump. Reverend Daryl Scott said the meeting was very lovely and Trump is a good guy. And we were just there as an information gathering session. And Trump gets up to the microphone and says to a hastily assembled press gaggle, well, uh, basically, I love the blacks. They love me. And we had a good meeting. And, uh, you know, we're we're going to keep talking. So it was relatively surreal in no small part because Amoroso Manigault, the villain of Trump's former show, uh, reality show, uh, The Apprentice, was standing there next to Trump. She apparently is uh, a minister and she is a big Trump supporter. So uh, when one of the reporters just quickly uh, to bring all this home, asked Trump at that press availability Monday morning after the meeting, asked Trump, well, it sounds as if some of the ministers had concerns about your tone and some of your rhetoric. It sounds like some of the things you say during your campaign stops are racially inflammatory. And Trump responded, well, the tone, the tone of my campaign and what I say has basically brought me to the top of the polls. Wow. And that to me was really shocking because no one really challenged him on that. And there are all these black ministers gathered around him smiling at the cameras. So uh, that made me side eye. Actually, my eyes sort of basically rolled up back into my head and I had to like, you know, slap my forehead to get my eyes back in position because Once again, question very her. surreal, yeah. just just bizarre and surreal. Mm-mm. So that was my big side eye Trump related item. Jamila. I too had to 
side-eye uh, Mr. Trump. Um, <laughs> and uh, to be completely honest, uh, you can just grab my handle and call me Jeannie because I told you it was going to happen. Uh, re- clearly, we remember when Donald Trump hosted Saturday Night Live a few weeks back. Uh, I wondered if the other candidates were going to run to NBC stations and demand equal time. Well, that's precisely what came to pass. News directors in Iowa, Indiana, and a couple other states had to run 30-second ads 24 times each. 12 minutes, 30 seconds ads, 24 times each. So uh, Lindsey Graham, John Kasich, Mike Huckabee, and Jim Gilmore. Yeah, remember he's running. Wow. Yeah. Those folks enjoyed a level of exposure not seen since, I don't know, Joe Lieberman ran that riveting town hall meeting of a few years back. Here is a clip, though, from Ohio Governor Kasich's Trump bashing ad that more people got to enjoy seeing. I would like anyone who is listening to consider some thoughts that I paraphrase from the words of German pastor Martin Niemöller. You might not care if Donald Trump says Muslims must register with their government because you're not one. And you might not care if Donald Trump says he's going to round up all the Hispanic immigrants because you're not one. And you might not care if Donald Trump says it's okay to rough up black protesters because you're not one. And you might not care if Donald Trump wants to suppress journalists because you're not one. But think about this. If he keeps going and he actually becomes president, he might just get around to you. And you better hope that there's someone left to help you. So clearly, we know what that's alluding to. Clearly, we remember the time in history where one particular religious group was forced to register, and they weren't Muslim, as uh, Mr. Trump is suggesting. So um, the, the Nazi rhetoric has come up, uh, and it came up publicly. 24 times. So, uh, lest I be accused, lest we here be accused of being too hard on the Don, I do want to point out that he's softening a bit. Uh, this past weekend, the security guards removed a protester from a rally in Sarasota. And in contrast to Trump yelling, get him the hell out of here, as he did when Mercur- Mercurio Southall Jr., who's a Black Lives Matter protester, got jumped and choked, uh, the apprentice host, I mean, excuse me, former apprentice host, he lost his job to an immigrant. Um, he said to security guards, be nice to the person. Don't hurt the person. Please nicely escort the person out. And then Mr. Trump asks, see how diplomatic I've become. So it still gets a side eye from me, but uh, it's better than what we've been getting from the Carnival Barker. So uh, I guess that's another week inside Iowa in 2016. And, um, yeah, we, we need to blink a lot and re-moisturize our eyes from them being so back in our heads over this past week. Okay. Well, thank you, Amy and Jamila. And I do apologize for any technical glitches. We'll, we'll, we'll get it right, right? <laughs> we'll get it right. Thank you. All right. So in our quick look at culture and media this week, movies, The Hunger Games, Mockingjay Part 2, with its theme of revolution against oppression, continues its place atop the box office. This Friday, the new Spike Lee joint, Chirac, opens in theaters. And 
The makers describe their film as a modern-day adaptation of the ancient Greek play Lysistrata by Aristophanes. Now, after the murder of a child by a stray bullet, a group of women led by Lysistrata organized against the ongoing violence in Chicago's South Side, creating a movement that challenges the nature of race, sex, violence in America and around the world. It stars Nick Cannon, Wesley Snipes. Ah, oh, I didn't know Wesley Snipes got out of jail. Okay. But um, anyway, it has a, a big cast. And uh, also in this section, um, the Academy of Motion Picture of Arts and Sciences has released a short list for the best documentary. Uh, nominees include what, ha what Happened, Miss Simone, the documentary about Nina Simone, directed by Liz Garbus, and Michael Moore's upcoming documentary, Where to Invade Next. And also, Three and a Half Minutes, Ten Bullets, directed by Mark Silver. And we're looking forward to our year-end movie special on arts and activism in a couple of weeks. But today, when we come back from this break, the father of Jordan Davis, Ron Davis, joins us to talk about that documentary, Three and a Half Minutes, Ten Bullets, and boycotting to end the violence. Stay with us.
Welcome back to Thursday's Community Watch and Comment, the On the Ground Edition. I'm Esther Averam, and I'm joined for this segment by Dr. Chu Chu, a pediatrician and youth advocate here in the Washington, D.C. area. And we're going to, in this section, talk about three and a half minutes, ten bullets. And this is a documentary where, as it's described, two lives intersected and were ever, forever altered. On Black Friday 2012, two cars parked next to each other at a Florida gas station. A white middle-aged male and a black teenager exchanged angry words over the volume of the music in the boy's car. A gun entered the exchange, and one of them was left dead. Michael Dunn fired 10 bullets at a car full of unarmed teenagers and then fled. Three of those bullets hit 17-year-old Jordan Davis, who died at the scene. Arrested the next day, Dunn claimed he shot in self-defense. Thus began the long journey of unraveling the truth. Three and a half minutes, ten bullets follows that journey, reconstructing the night of the murder and revealing how hidden racial prejudice can result in tragedy. IndieWire calls the movie a harrowing exploration of criminal justice gone awry and an all-too-timely film that speaks loudly to the current racial climate in America. With me to discuss the movie and the activism he has pursued since his son's murder is Ron Davis, father of Jordan Davis and CEO of the Jordan Davis Foundation. He joins us this morning, I think from Florida? Yes. Uh, uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Esther. Thank you for having me. Now, I know you just got a lot of news about the the movie. Uh, the It was nominated, I think, I mentioned in the last segment, uh, it's been shortlisted for an Oscar. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, it's on a shortlist, but, you know, it doesn't mean that you're going to be nominated. But, you know, it's just an honor just out of about 130 documentaries to uh, be on the shortlist, uh, which the shortlist is about 15 films. Mm. Okay. So that, that's an honor just in itself, especially one that, you know, wasn't promoted like a lot of the other high-profile films were promoted. Yeah. So... Tell me uh, a little bit about the impact the movie has had in bringing your case and your story to the public. I, I think uh, the impact would be, when you look at our case, Michael Dunn, he saw the Trayvon Martin trial. Michael Dunn saw that George Zimmerman basically got away with murder. And there are many Michael Dunns out here across this country and when they see that they can use their weapon and kill black and brown lives with impunity, then it creates an atmosphere that we can shoot them and get away with it. All we have to do is say these five words, I feared for my life. And you hear that refrain over and over again. And with this film, we want to show that, no, maybe you won't get away with it. Maybe you'll lose your freedom or maybe your life. And so in this situation, people see across the country that when a white man in the South, which is historical, kills a black man or a brown person, that he doesn't get away with it. You know, that it's first-degree murder, life imprisonment with no chance of parole. And when people see this across the country, number one, if you're a person of color, you feel like you won something at last, you know. At last, we got some sort of justice. And if you're a white person that has the thoughts, as Michael Dunn, a white supremacist-type person, that mindset, that you say, you know what, maybe I should not pull the trigger. Maybe I better think about my own freedom. Maybe I may go to jail for the rest of my life. And I think this film gives that platform to weigh in on that discussion. 
Chuchu, did you have yeah. a question? Well, first of all, Mr. Davis, I, I want to thank you for being with us. And I want you to know that those of us in the Washington, D.C. area send you and your wife our deepest sympathy for the loss of your son because we know that you're still dealing with this. But there's something I want to ask you specifically that I've heard you say that I think is extremely pivotal today. You keep saying African-American teenagers are Americans. Would you like to expand on that a little bit for our listeners and tell us what you mean by that? Well, you know, it, it, every time that uh, white America looks at African-American teenagers, they look at them as others. You know, they, they look at them as if the first thing that I'm going to see is something that may be dangerous. And until you engage them, then all of a sudden you find that they're just like all the other American kids. They have aspirations. They want to go to school. They want to get a car. They want to get uh, a house. And, and the whole thing, the whole gamut. And I want America to just stop looking at our kids as if they're suspicious. And that's how they look at it. You know, you don't start from zero and then work your way from there. We start from a negative feel, a negative look, you know. And our kids, as they say, we have targets on their backs because one false move and it could end your life. And why should we as African-American parents have to go through and tell these stories and tell our kids to watch out for this and you know, they're like boogeyman stories in your own country that we have to talk about where white people don't have to have those conversations. So we need to stop having to have that conversation with our kids and stop white America from looking at our kids as others, you know. And so that's what we mean by, you know, it's just an American kid. That's one thing I think that the movie does so powerfully mm -hmm. in terms of humanizing Jordan and you as a family is such a there's so many beautiful scenes in it. It's it's really heart wrenching. And and I, you know, I mean, I think I don't think any parent really or any human being really can really watch the documentary and not come away from it really moved. So we're going to play the trailer from the movie now. This is the trailer for three and a half minutes, 10 bullets. Fire rescue Carter, the address of your emergency. Um, I'm at the gate gas station. Shots fired in the parking lot. Two black males stepped out. Came from the red SUV. I don't know if they were trying to stash something. The person driving the vehicle was the one shooting out of the vehicle. It was like pop, 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 pop. Second here. Pop, 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 pop. He's being charged with shooting and killing 17-year-old Jordan Davis. The confrontation began over loud music. Was there music playing in the car? Yes. What type of music? Rap. Did the defendant say anything about the music? Oh, I hate that thug music. Thug is the new N-word. He's just seen four black kids. I'm not racist. They're racist. Michael Dunn is claiming self-defense. All right. So uh, those were sounds from the, the movie. And um, so one of the things I know that you're involved in right now, uh, Ron, is this uh, call for a boycott, you know, during this holiday season. And I want you to talk a little bit about that and what brought you to that decision and perspective. I, uh, we had a, a phone conference with uh, Minister Farrakhan and uh, he was gathering a lot of the higher-profile families that had suffered through police incidents or incidents where citizens had killed black and brown lives. 
and had basically gotten away with it. And and so we started thinking of different ways that we could uh, make an impact. And one thing that I suggested was that, you know, Jordan was killed on Black Friday, 2012. And I said, well, let's have a Black Friday blackout. And, of course, the minister said, let's have a blackout from Black Friday all the way to Christmas, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, uh, but for me, Black Friday blackout was like, one power that you do have, even though you don't have the power to vote on a lot of things that the Congress and the senators, they're going to look to the gun manufacturers and look to the NRA and take their cues from them because they are the campaign funders and they're not going to vote for for gun legislation. But one thing that we have is that economic power. We have the freedom to choose where we spend our dollars. And I just wanted to see the impact of having a Black Friday blackout where we do not spend one dime on Black Friday. And the impact is showing that about 10% of the retail sales are down this past Black Friday. Now, of course, just like they did in the uh, when we had the Justice or Else uh, gathering in Washington, because the Nation of Islam was involved, they had over 200,000 people on the mall in Washington, and the news didn't cover it. Not even BET, who's not even black-owned anymore, they didn't cover it. The reason why is because anything that has to do with that sort of the Nation of Islam or anything like that, they're not going to cover it because they don't want to show that on the TV screen. They don't want to show that Minister Farrakhan can impact so many people as long as he comes to the table with the fact that we want to stop the killing of black and brown lives. That's the first thing on the agenda and not all these other things. And so we came together with him on the mall because that was the main theme of it, justice or else. And so the same thing they're doing on Black Friday. They don't want to show the impact that we have not spending our dollars on Black Friday, so they're going to attribute it to, well, it was higher online sales, you know, uh, the reason why it was watered down is because there was a Black Thursday, uh, there's a Black Friday, Saturday, there's, you know, and so they're going to attribute to so many other things, but the, the store owners, where those people like in Chicago on a Magnificent Mile was protesting and shutting down these stores, they know of the economic uh, you know, the economic impact because of the fact that their sales were down 25 to 35 to 45 percent because people were not coming into the stores. So there is a lot of value in having a Black Friday blackout and a blackout of any sort where people can come together across the nation and do the same thing. Okay. Now, we, we've talked about the movie, and now we know a little bit more about the economic boycott. What other kinds of initiatives uh, are you involved with through the foundation? Or I guess, you know, this is certainly enough to keep your hands full, but I'm wondering if there's other things that you're involved in in terms of youth and, or other issues. Yeah, we have a foundation called the Jordan Davis Foundation, and the website is walkwithjordan.org, walkwithjordan.org. And we give out scholarships uh, in here in Jacksonville, Florida, and we're going to uh, get funding to do it, start doing it across the nation. And that, that's my, you know, my, my, my dream for Georgia we... and for the foundation. Okay. All right. I think, yeah, there was a little gap in sound there. But, but that's, that's great. And, you know, so many of these cases, well, 
the very high profile case of Trayvon Martin and uh, the case involving you know the death of your son Jordan happened in Florida and I know that that state has a very controversial standard ground law we also had the case of the mother Melissa you know uh, who uh, was didn't get the benefit of that law in terms of of shooting at but not even striking her uh, abusive uh, estranged husband and I'm wondering if you're through your foundation or through other means of working with other groups you've been able to have people take another look at that law stand your ground yes. law yes as a matter of fact me and uh, Jordan's mother Lucy we uh, we went to the House of Representatives in Florida at the Capitol in Tallahassee and we tried to have it repealed we had a representative Alan Williams to uh, put a bill in to repeal the law but what they've done is they've actually the NRA with the help of Marion Hammer who was the first female president of the NRA they attached the stand your ground law to the castle doctrine where your home is your castle so in order to repeal it you must repeal the castle doctrine and nobody wants to do that so the the best I you know outcome is to have an amendment to stand your ground and that's what we're trying to get an amendment to stand your ground and try to have someone sponsor some bills to amend it the three things that must be amended is one you should have a duty to retreat you know when you have two people that are angry at each other and they both have guns you need to make sure that they both get home safely to their families so we want a duty to retreat hmm. and we also uh, one of the things is there should be a jury to uh, assess whether stand your ground should exist rather than a, a, a one person a judge because that judge could have bias based on you know whether the shooter was african-american or not whether the, the the person killed was uh, a judge's son, a, a senator's son, a congressperson's son. So there's different reasons why that one person may have a bias in the case. And it always leans against African-Americans whenever there's a shooting. You know, if there's a white person shooting an African-American, most of the time, you know, they will get stand your ground. Whereas an African-American shooting a white person is very rare you're going to get stand your ground. So there's a racial tone to it. I know the, in Florida there were 44 cases where... African Americans have put in for stand your ground, and only two of them got it. So, you know that shows you there's definitely uh, a racial element to stand your ground. Uh, so we we want to try to get that amended. The other thing we want to get amended is, uh, you know, in stand your ground, if you're coming out of a theater with your children and somebody is standing their ground, and two people are engaging in this activity and they both start shooting. If bullets hit your family and kill your family, do you not understand your ground? You're considered collateral damage. Hmm. In other words, that you cannot sue in a criminal court nor in a civil court the way it stands. You just got hit by a straight bullet, but that person was okay to shoot that bullet, understand your ground. So therefore, you have uh, no re recourse for the death of your of your siblings or the death of your loved ones. So, wow. you know, that has to be amended. You have to be held accountable when you shoot a bullet whether the bullet hits the person, uh, the target, or whether it hits uh, innocent bystanders, you should have to be held accountable. So that's the thing that we want to change also. Well, this is uh, me, uh, Choo Choo. No, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. We're uh, going to have to wound up. We are running out of time, but we could we could talk for another yeah. hour. But you know, people can see the movie on HBO right now, right? That's three and a half minutes, ten bullets. Right, HBO, and you can see it on HBO On Demand also up until the 21st of December. You can see it on HBO Go. So you, you just look out for it, and anybody that has HBO, you can see it. 
And okay. uh, also, I just want to say briefly is that we're going to be up in New York on uh, December the 16th. And on the 16th, we're going to meet with Google. And we'll be in the Google offices. We're going to do a presentation. And they're going to have YouTube up there. And we're going to be on YouTube channels also. So we're okay. going to really be pushing this film. Congratulations. Okay. And thank you. Uh, we've been speaking to Ron Davis, father of Jordan Davis, and uh, CEO of the Jordan Davis Foundation. And that will do it for us on the Thursday edition of Community Watching Comment, the On the Ground edition. I'm Esther Averam, and this is Chantel James. We're signing off for Amy Alexander, Jamila Bay, and Dr. Choo Choo. And thanks to Michael Byfield and DJ Waheed and Mike Nacella. Thank you. Thank you through it all. And thank you for tuning in. We will participate in WPFW's mini drive next week, so we urge you to support the survival of your station for jazz and justice, or as we say, justice and jazz, and coverage of activists and activism here in the nation's capital and around the blue planet. Now stay tuned for the news, followed by the Thursday edition of Don't Forget the Blues with Krista Property. Raise your voice out there. Peace.